Anti-Federalist Papers, Section 33, Brutus Letter 13. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by M. L. Cohen, Cleveland, Ohio, May 2007. 21 February 1788. Having in the two preceding numbers examined the nature and tendency of the judicial power as it respects the explanation of the Constitution, I now proceed to the consideration of the other matters of which it has cognizance. The next paragraph extends its authority to all cases in law and equity arising under the laws of the United States. This power, as I understand it, is a proper one. The proper province of the judicial power in any government is, as I conceive, to declare what is the law of the land, to explain and enforce those laws which is the supreme power a legislature may pass, but not to declare what the powers of the legislature are. I suppose the cases in equity under the laws must be so construed as to give the Supreme Court not only a legal, but equitable jurisdiction of cases which may be brought before them, or in other words, so, as to give them not only the powers which are now exercised by our courts of law, but those also which are now exercised by our court of chancery. If this be the meaning, I have no other objection to the power than what arises from the undue extension of the legislative power. For, I conceive that the judicial power should be commensurate with the legislative, or in other words, the Supreme Court should have authority to determine questions arising under the laws of the Union. The next paragraph, which gives the power to decide the law and equity on all cases arising under treaties, is unintelligible to me. I can readily comprehend what is meant by deciding a case under a treaty. For as treaties will be the law of the land, every person who has rights or privileges secured by treaty will have aids of courts of law in recovering them. But I do not understand what is meant by equity arising under a treaty. I presume every right which can be claimed under a treaty must be claimed by virtue of some article or clause contained in it, which gives the right in plain and obvious words. Or at least I conceive that the rules for explaining treaties are so well ascertained that there is no need of having recourse to an equitable construction. If under this power the courts are to explain treaties according to what they conceive are their spirit, which is nothing less than a power given them whatever extension they may judge proper, it is a dangerous and improper power. The cases affecting ambassadors, public ministers and consuls, of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, controversies to which the United States are a party, and controversies between states, it is proper should be under the cognizance of the courts of the Union, because none but the general government can or ought to pass laws on their subject. But I conceive the clause which extends the power of the judicial to controversy arising between a state and the citizens of another state improper in itself, and will, in its exercise, prove most pernicious and destructive. It is improper because it's subject to state to answer in a court of law to the suit of an individual. This is humiliating and degrading to a government, and what I believe the supreme authority of no state ever submitted to. The states are now subject to no such actions. All contracts entered into by individuals with states were made upon the faith and credit of the states, and the individuals never had in contemplation any compulsory mode of obliging the government to fulfill its engagements. The evil consequences that will flow from the exercise of this power will best appear by tracing it in its operation. The Constitution does not direct the mode in which an individual shall commence a suit against a state or the manner in which the judgment of the court shall be carried into execution, but it gives the legislature full power to pass all laws which shall be proper and necessary for the purpose. 
and they certainly must make provision for these purposes, or otherwise the power of the judicial will be nugatory. For to what purpose will the power of the judicial be if they have no mode in which they can call the parties before them? Or of what use will it be to call the parties to answer if after they have given judgment there is no authority to execute the judgment? We must therefore conclude that the legislature will pass laws which will be effectual in this head. An individual of one state will then have a legal remedy against the state for any demand he may have against the state to which he does not belong. Every state in the Union is largely indebted to individuals. For the payment of these debts they have been given notes payable to the bearer. At least this is the case in this state. Whenever a citizen of another state becomes possessed of one of these notes, he may commence an action in the Supreme Court of the General Government, and I cannot see any way in which he can be prevented from recovering. It is easy to see that when this once happens, the notes of the state will pass rapidly from the hands of the citizens of the state to those of other states. And when the citizens of other states possess them, they may bring suits against the state for them, and by this means judgments and executions may be obtained against the state for the whole amount of the state debt. It is certain the state, with the utmost exertions it can make, will not be able to discharge the debt she owes under a considerable number of years, perhaps with the best management, it will require twenty or thirty years to discharge it. This new system will protract the time in which the ability of the state will enable them to pay off their debt, because all the funds of the state will be transferred to the general government, except those which arise from internal taxes. The situation of the states will be deplorable. By this system, they will surrender to the general government all the means of raising money, and, at the same time, will subject themselves to suits at law for the recovery of the debts they have contracted in effecting the revolution. The debts of the individual states will amount to a sum exceeding the domestic debt of the United States. These will be left upon them, with power in the judicial of the general government to enforce their payment, while the general government will possess an exclusive command of the most productive funds from which the states can derive money, and a command of every other source of revenue paramount to the authority of any state. It may be said that the apprehension that the judicial power will operate in this manner is merely visionary, for that the legislature will never pass laws that will work these effects, or, if they were disposed to do it, they cannot provide for levying an execution on a state, for where will the officer find property whereon to levy? To this I would reply, if this is a power which will not or cannot be executed, it was useless and unwise to grant it to the judicial. For what purpose is a power given which it is imprudent or impossible to exercise? If it be improper for a government to exercise a power, it is improper that they should be vested with it, and it is unwise to authorize a government to do what they cannot effect. As to the idea that the legislature cannot provide for levying an execution on a state, I believe it is not well founded. I presume the last paragraph of the eighth section of Article I gives the Congress express power to pass any laws they may judge proper and necessary for carrying into execution the power vested in the judicial department. And they must exercise this power, or otherwise the courts of justice will not be able to carry into effect the authorities with which they are invested. For the Constitution does not direct the mode in which the courts are to proceed, to bring parties before them, to try causes, or to carry the judgment of the courts into execution. Unless they are pointed out by law, how are these to proceed in any of the cases of which they have cognizance? They have the same authority to establish regulations in respect to these matters, where a state is a party, as where an individual is a party. 
The only difficulty is, on whom shall process be served, when a state is a party, and how shall execution be levied? With regard to the first, the way is easy. Either the executive or legislative of the state may be notified, and upon proof being made of the services of the notice, the court may proceed to a hearing of the cause. Execution may be levied on any property of the state, either real or personal. The treasury may be seized by the officers of the general government, or any lands the property of the state may be made to subject and seizure and sale to satisfy any judgment against it. Whether the estate of any individual citizen may not be made answerable for the discharge of judgments against the state may be worth consideration. In some corporations this is the case. If the power of the judicial under this clause will extend to the cases above stated, it will, if executed, produce the utmost confusion, and in its progress will crush the states beneath its weight. And if it does not extend to these cases, I confess myself utterly at a loss to give it any meaning. For if the citizen of one state, possessed of a written obligation, given in pursuance of a solemn act of the legislature, acknowledging a debt due to the bearer and promising to pay it, cannot recover in the Supreme Court, I can conceive of no case in which they can recover. And it appears to me ridiculous to provide for obtaining judgment against the state without giving the means of levying execution. Brutus End Anti-Federalist Paper Section 33